If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew 4. We'll be in 23 through 25, as Mike just read. If you were here two weeks ago, I preached, and uh, I had a, a bit of a cough, and uh, so it was a struggle. Still have a little bit of a cough, but uh, I think I should be able to make it through uh, uh, through okay today. But uh, So I, I did that two weeks ago, and then last week, I wasn't here. Uh, probably many of you didn't even notice that I wasn't here, but some of you did. And, uh, and so uh, Jared and my wife said that multiple people came up to them and said, is Jeff in the hospital? To which I thought, number one, you care. That's sweet. And then number two, I thought, you guys are pessimists, right? I miss one week and you think I'm in the hospital or something like that. In reality, I was actually on a little retreat with uh, Bryce Runyon, one of our elders, and we went to a, uh, a little retreat for leaders of nonprofits. Uh, we went up into Montana and did some uh, fly fishing. So basically just recreated a river runs through it. I was Brad Pitt, obviously. And, uh, <laughs> and so we were fly fishing. That's something I'd never done. So I've done, I grew up on the bay uh, uh, down in Baytown. And, uh, and so I've done saltwater fishing. I've done a lot of lake fishing and so forth, but I'd never done anything up north like trout fishing. And so it was, uh, it was fun. Uh, last week, Jared talked about being fishers of men. I was fishing for fish while y'all were doing that. And I caught three, which was, uh, which was awesome. It was a really cool experience. I caught two brown trout and one rainbow trout, which my daughter helpfully told me didn't look like a rainbow. Uh, I also had another on the line, but my line snapped. Beyond that, uh, I had about a thousand bites and didn't catch them because I'm not very good at fly fishing. I'm really good at catching my own shirt. I did that 70 times. Caught my hat, caught my guide's shirt and my guide's hat, caught the other guy in the boat with me, uh, caught our boat. And, uh, and so I'm good at catching stuff, just as long as that stuff isn't fish. Uh, but I loved it. It was, uh, it was a really fun experience for me, and, uh, and I loved it. And uh, so... I'm not very good, but there were other guys on the trip who were really good fishermen. Uh, in fact, there were a couple of guys who caught dozens of fish every day that we uh, went out. But here's the thing. No one of any of the people caught every single fish in the river, right? In fact, no one even caught every single fish that hit their bait. Uh, there are lots of reasons why. Maybe they weren't paying attention at the time. Maybe the fish was too quick. Maybe they didn't set the hook hard enough. Maybe the line snapped. I had that happen one time. Whatever it might be, my favorite reason that someone didn't uh, catch a fish involved, uh, there was a guy on the trip who was a former professional football player. He actually won a Super Bowl a decade ago. And he was fishing at one point, and he cast the line so powerfully that his momentum took him straight out of the boat <laughs> into the water, which was 44 degrees, by, uh, by the way. And I have to imagine, if I'm a little trout in a little river in Montana, the sight and the sound of a 250-pound former professional athlete splashing into the water would be a bit unnerving. So he didn't catch anything, all right? But the point is, none of us caught every fish we possibly could have. And I mention all that because in our text this morning, Jesus is, in, an, in a sense, he is fishing. Right? That's what we saw last week on Make You Fishers of Men, and we, that's kind of what Jesus is doing uh, in, uh, in this passage, we'll see people from all around who are being brought to him. But unlike me, he actually has skill. He actually has authority. 
In fact, we see that he heals every disease. He heals every affliction among the people. And as we've talked about quite a bit over the past few weeks, that's a sign of the kingdom in breaking. That's a sign of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. They're manifest in the work of Jesus Christ. Christ's authority over disease and over demons. That's a demonstration that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's incarnate in Christ. It's inaugurated in his life and ministry. So let's pray and then we'll get into the text together. I ask you first just to pray for yourself. The Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning and a heart that would be willing and uh, desirous to obey. <coughs> would you pray that for those around you as well? The Lord would give us collectively, whether that's your biological family or it's a stranger who's sitting next to you, would you pray for our church collectively that we might hear and heed God's word this morning, believe it. And then lastly, would you pray for me? So Father, we're grateful for the privilege that we have to read your word and to hear your word, a privilege that your people throughout history haven't always had. And so we're grateful for the opportunity for us to not only read your word on an individual level, but to do so corporately and to have the, the opportunity to gather together, which is itself a grace to us. And so I pray that you would meet with us this morning, that we would believe your word and that our lives would be transformed as a result of encountering Christ in a more powerful way. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Look at Matthew 4.23. We'll start there. And he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. We'll see this is another transitional text. But we've kind of been, the, the past couple of weeks, kind of been transitional text. There's not as much action in these, we're about to get into the Beatitudes, and then we'll get into uh, parables, and we'll start seeing Jesus' uh, miracles and all those kinds of things. This is another one of these transitional sort of texts. So far in the text, we've seen Jesus kind of bouncing all over the place. Uh, there's been a lot of geography that we've covered in the book of Matthew thus far. Jesus is born in what city? Bethlehem, right? Not a trick question, right? Then he uh, has to flee from Herod, and so they go where? Egypt, all right. Then he comes back, and he moves into what city? Nazareth, that's where he grew up. Then he heads down south to the area of Judea to be baptized. Judea is the area where Jerusalem and Bethlehem and so forth is. Then he comes back up north to the area of Galilee, and he settles in the town of Capernaum. So now we see that his ministry is not just limited to Capernaum, but it's all around the area of Galilee, which is this general area around the Sea of Galilee, just basically northern Israel represents kind of, if you think of the Old Testament division between Israel and Judah, everything that's in Israel generally is described as Galilee. So it's this area around the Sea of Galilee, which isn't actually a sea, it's actually a lake in northern Israel. So what Jesus is doing here is he's doing itinerant ministry. He doesn't just set up shop in one particular city or one particular synagogue or something like that. He's traveling all around 
the area. And what's he doing as he's traveling around the area? He's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing. This is kind of the summer, uh, summary of, of his ministry. And we'll actually encounter the same thing again in chapter 9. Look at chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. See, almost the exact same language, a couple of little substitutions, but almost the exact same language, certainly the exact same idea. And that uh, repetition of this same idea in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 9 is really interesting. In fact, many uh, theologians, many scholars think that the reason that Matthew is going to repeat himself in chapters 4 and then also in chapter 9 is in order to communicate a literary device called an inclusio. Probably not something you remember from high school English, but an inclusio is, uh, is kind of like bookends. Think of the way that bookends function on a shelf. You have these two bookends, and everything in between those two bookends share a similarity. Namely, they're all books, right? That's kind of how an inclusio functions in literature. An inclusio is a bookend. An author would parallel these two statements in a written work like bookends or, or, or a parentheses. And what it does is it tells the reader that everything you find between those bookends are somehow related to the bookend itself. <coughs> Excuse me. In other words, a bookend, the bookends are a summary of the intervening material. All right. So what you see in chapter 4, what you see in chapter 9, that's a summary of everything that you're going to see between chapters 4 and 9. Does that make sense? So what does that mean? So the bookends occur at the end of chapter 4 and toward the end of chapter 9. So what's between those chapters? What's between chapters 4 and 9? Yeah, just count, right? 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, right? And what are those chapters about? What are chapters 5 through 7 about? Sermon on the Mount, right? In other words, what's Jesus doing there? He's teaching and he's proclaiming. Now, if you have a Bible and you want to flip over, you can flip over especially if you have a Bible that kind of tells you in you know, non-inspired breaks, but it tells you kind of the, the summaries of individual sections. If you were to flip over into chapters 8 and 9, you would notice almost every single section of a text, it's called a pericope, it's the technical term for it, a little section of the text, almost every single one in chapters 8 through 9 involves Jesus doing what? Healing. Almost every single one involves Jesus healing. Healing, which is fascinating, right? Because what's happening in chapter 4 and chapter 9 is they're saying, Matthew's saying, that Jesus' ministry is, function, uh, is, uh, is revolving around these three functions. He's, pre he's teaching, he's proclaiming, and then he's healing. And then in the intervening chapters, almost every single thing that's involved there is Jesus teaching, proclaiming, and healing. In other words, chapters 4 and 5 are these bookends. They are an inclusio. They're these summary statements that Jesus uh, went around teaching and preaching and healing, and then everything you read between those two statements proves that, demonstrates that, teaches that. So that's an inclusio. The summary statement at the end of chapter 4 is going to set the stage 
for every single thing that we're going to see in chapters 5 through 9 until we get to the other summary statement at the end of chapter 9. Maybe you've never noticed that before. Maybe you've never heard of an inclusio before or a pericope before or something like that. It's just a reminder of the beautiful uh, complexity and richness of God's Word. Maybe you've been reading Scripture for years. Maybe you've studied Matthew in particular for years. You never noticed that before. It just shows that you can study it for a lifetime and you never exhaust the treasures therein. Now, it's really interesting that Matthew is going to mention synagogues here. It says Jesus went throughout all Galilee, and he's teaching in particular in the synagogues. The reason that that is so interesting uh, is uh, because of all the sermons <coughs> that Matthew is going to record, and he records a number of them, not one of them is actually from a synagogue. So Matthew says that Jesus is teaching from a synagogue, but then whenever he actually describes the sermons of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus, none of those take place at a synagogue. They take place on a mountain, they take place by the lake, they take place in, the, uh, in a valley or something uh, like that. It's really interesting. They're all on the countryside or on the lake. They're in some sort of dramatic setting. But Matthew mentions the synagogues here, given that that is the center of the Jewish life. The word synagogue, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the importance of the gathering in theological equipping a couple of weeks ago, but the word synagogue literally means a place of gathering. So don't think of a synagogue merely as being synonymous to like a modern American church, like this building being a synagogue or something like that. It's much more holistic. It's a much bigger word and concept than a modern church. It's kind of a church slash civic center slash school. It's where Jewish people gathered to discuss life and politics and theology and so forth. So whatever you gathered for in Jewish culture, typically you gathered at the synagogue. So Jesus is teaching there in the synagogues, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, which we've talked about a number of times in this book, is, uh, is the primary message not only of Jesus, but it's the primary message of the entire Bible. Again, this is the gospel. Notice that language, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. If you want to know why we say, as we've said a number of times, that the kingdom is the gospel and the gospel is the kingdom, here it is. Matthew calls it, quote, the gospel of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, we've talked about this, again, a number of times over the past few weeks. The Bible is the story of two kingdoms. It's the story of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of man. It's the story of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God represents the good news or the gospel of God's rule and reign. The gospel, I'm sorry, the kingdom doesn't refer to the place in which God reigns. The kingdom refers to the reality of God's reign in and of itself. It's the power, not the place. It's the authority of God's rule in his reign. So think, if you will, of a world with none of the effects of the fall. There's no diseases, there's no death, there's no demonic oppression. That's what the kingdom is all about. So as we read about Jesus healing diseases and healing afflictions, this is not merely another activity in addition to preaching and, and proclaiming that in itself is a form of teaching and proclaiming the gospel. When Jesus is casting out demons, when Jesus is healing people, 
In doing so, he's demonstrating the kingdom. He's teaching the kingdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom, not merely in his words, but also in his works. It's a demonstration of the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, these aren't just parlor tricks. These aren't just magic tricks to impress an audience. This is a visible expression of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven. And other men throughout Scripture have certainly been gifted with the ability to heal. For example, Elijah. Right? But notice here the adjective, every. Every disease and every affliction. Later in the book, we'll see the disciples are given a degree of authority. The disciples are going around and they're healing people and they're casting out demons. But we'll also see them that they hit kind of this ceiling at some point. They hit this level of resistance. We'll read about the account that they they encounter a, a type of demon that Jesus says can only come out with prayer and fasting. We'll get to what that means a little bit later in our work through Matthew. But for now, just notice Jesus doesn't have that obstacle. Jesus never hits a ceiling to his authority. There's no type of demon. There's no type of affliction. There's no type of disease that Jesus says, I don't have authority here. I can't do this thing here. This is too great. I'm not skillful enough. I'm not authoritative enough. And the reason is because he isn't operating in mediated authority. Unlike Elijah and the disciples, and other prophets and patriarchs and so forth. He isn't just a vessel through whom God works. He is himself God. He isn't merely an instrument of the kingdom. He himself is the king who is manifesting the kingdom. And as the king, he himself has all authority. All authority over what? Over all of the enemies of the kingdom. All that is wrong will be made right. All that is sad will become untrue. Think back to Genesis. God creates the world in Genesis 1, and he calls it what? What adjective does he use? Good. Then the fall happens. And with it, the introduction of various forms of bad or evil. The word, the Hebrew word is the exact same for bad or evil. So sin and sickness and demonic oppression and death. All of those are seen as enemies of the kingdom. They're symptoms of this underlying fracture between God and creation, between creator and creation. So all of these things are enemies. All of these things are results of the fall. And notice all of them are being overcome by Christ. Some of them in his first advent, others in his second advent. But let's camp out for a second on the force of these adjectives, all and every. Notice how often those occur In our text today, all Galilee, all Syria, every affliction, every disease. In other words, Matthew is using these adjectives in order to communicate just how comprehensive Christ's authority was. Just how comprehensive the kingdom is. It wasn't limited to only one place or only one type of affliction. It was holistic. It was full. Now, this doesn't mean that literally every single person in Galilee came or that every single person who was sick was healed. Matthew isn't intending to speak literally here, but generally in order to communicate how powerful Jesus is, how popular Jesus is in the countryside. Bear in mind the way that Galilee was described when we first encountered it in Matthew. 
It was described as the region and shadow of death and darkness. Way back in verse 16. So what's happening in this passage is that Christ is bringing light and he's bringing life to an area that was previously dead and dark. Let's keep going. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So Jesus is becoming well-known in the area. He's, he's gaining a bit of a reputation, a cult following, and people are responding. They're bringing to him all who are sick and demonized and otherwise afflicted. Again, this is a reflection of the extent of his kingdom, the inauguration of his kingdom, the extent of his authority, his rule and reign. Jesus is demonstrating here that he is the king. And as the king, he subdues all of the enemies to his rule and reign. <clears throat> all of the enemies that are introduced in the garden, whether that's disease or demonization or death, all of those things we see Christ overcoming. That will be the central message of the book of Matthew. If you want to understand Matthew, you have to understand this concept of the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is about more than anything else. That's what Matthew is about more than anything else. Jesus is overcoming all of these enemies to the kingdom of God. Everything that oppresses us, everything that pushes us down, every bit of injustice, every bit of affliction, every disease and death and sin and suffering, all of those things Christ is overcoming. And in its place, he doesn't merely remove them and leave a vacuum. In its place, he offers life and flourishing and joy. And the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, but it means more than that. Holistic. It's, it, it, it means wholeness and fullness. Now, when we think about uh, this offer today, we think about Christ's authority today as it relates to diseases and demonization and so forth. There are two errors that we have to avoid as we're trying to, to, to pull this text and apply it in our 21st century American context. There are these two errors that we need to avoid, two sides of the pendulum. The first is we kind of read this document and we say, that's really cool, that's neat. Jesus did those things way back in history. This is a historical document and nothing more. We think this tells us something that Jesus did doesn't tell us all that much about what Jesus does today. Yeah, he brought about wholeness. He brought about healing back then, but not today. Maybe at some point in the future, he's going to return. We can expect good things then. But for now, we just kind of have to grin and bear it. For now, we can't have any expectation that God is going to heal, that God is going to work in our lives, that the Spirit is going to move in our lives and so forth. And if you think that way, you're going to tend to have a very anemic prayer life. You're going to tend to be a pessimist. You're going to have a very pessimistic view. You're going to have very high expectations of seeing evidences of the kingdom at work today. That's the first error that we need to avoid because Christ is still working today. The Spirit is still working today. So the second error that people make is they swing the pendulum from that end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum into what's called an overrealized eschatology. Again, you're swinging the pendulum from one extreme to the other. Rather than thinking this is just something that's in the past, it's going to emphasize God's work in the present, but it does so, kind of naming and claiming promises that, that God has promised in the future. This is the, 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 the fault of uh, the heresy known as the prosperity gospel. 
Many of the charismatic branches of Christianity do this today. In essence, it says that since God has promised life and healing and deliverance and wholeness, and make no mistakes, God has promised those things. But the problem is, it says, since God has promised those things, we can demand them today. We can have absolute expectations that God has promised them today. However, where it goes wrong is that it takes things that God has promised in the future and it tries to pull them into the present. That's why it's called an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology means the, the doctrine or study of the end times. It takes something that God has promised in the resurrection, in the age to come, at Christ's second advent, and it seems to apply it in the future. So those are the two errors. One is going to focus too much on the past and say, God doesn't do these things today. The other is going to focus too much on the future or, or on the present. And, uh, and so what is a more health, helpful and faithful approach? I think a more helpful and faithful and biblical approach is to hold this tension, the idea of the kingdom. We've talked about one of the things you have to understand if you want to understand the kingdom is the idea that the kingdom is described as already, but not yet. If someone were to ask, is the kingdom here? You would say yes. But there's also a sense in which it's not here. It's already, but it's not yet. Unlike the first approach, there is this profound sense in which the kingdom is already here. Christ is still working in this world. He's healing. He's reconciling relationships. All of his authority is available, and we should ask for it. To beg God to move, to beg God to work in our lives. But then also to keep in mind the not yet of the kingdom. This is where prosperity gospel and over-realized eschatology and a lot of charismatics go wrong. To know that even if God doesn't heal today, there will be healing in the resurrection. To know that some of God's promises are going to be unfulfilled in this life, but none of them will be unfulfilled when the age to come comes. So we should be a people of expectancy. We should expect God to move. We should ask God for healing. We should ask God to reconcile relationships. We should ask God to reconcile our marriage. If Christ can raise someone from the dead, if Christ himself can be raised from the dead, there is no level of disorder in your life that can't be healed. That's a fundamental denial of the gospel. We should be a people of expectancy, but also a people of patience. A people who recognize that God has made promises and he will fulfill those promises, even though not all of them will be fulfilled in this life. So we should be a people marked by desperate prayer and sincere hope that one day every single enemy of the kingdom will be destroyed. King Jesus will reign without resistance of any sort. So we begin to see little hints of in this text. Let's keep going. Matthew 4, 25, And great cloud, clouds, crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Do you see here again the response of the crowds? He's gaining in notoriety. He's gaining in his fame and huge crowds are following him. They're following him from all over Galilee and the north and Judea and the south and even the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a nickname for a region Kind of like when we said the Metroplex or the Twin Cities, Minneapolis or something like that, and St. Paul. 
Decapolis literally means 10 cities. Referred to 10 cities there in the area, obviously. Scholars today aren't exactly sure which 10 cities, but the general idea is, is fairly well established. It kind of covered this large area, the swath, most of which is in modern-day Jordan, just east of the Jordan River. One of the cities that they think was part of the Decapolis was actually uh, just on the, uh, the west bank of the Jordan. But most of this is all taking place to the east of the Jordan River. And in this statement, and also the reference where we read earlier about Syria, we see a little hint here of something that will be a major theme, become much more pronounced as we move throughout the book, and that is the theme of this idea of the inclusion of Gentiles. There's something really fascinating that happens in the book of Matthew. Matthew is by far the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It's the one with the most allusions and quotations of the Old Testament, But it also is going to be the one that's going to most demonstrate the failure of Jerusalem as a people or the failure of Israel as a people. And you're going to see this dominant theme of the reversal expectation. By and large, Matthew is going to present Gentiles as seeing the thing that Jewish authorities should have seen, but they didn't see. Again, this will will be a huge thing that we'll see as the book continues. Christ speaks of the kingdom. He speaks of the kingdom going to Israel, but Israel rejects it. So it's offered to the Gospels. This is going to be a big theme in a lot of his parables. That's going to be shouted later in Matthew. For now, you just kind of see or hear these whispers of it. So the crowds are following Jesus, and crowds are another sort of interesting motif of Matthew. Crowds kind of play this middle position between the disciples and the Jewish authorities. Jewish authorities in Matthew's gospel are almost universally, almost entirely antagonistic toward Jesus. The disciples are generally the kind of protagonists of the story. Obviously, Jesus is the only true protagonist of the story. But in general, the disciples are seen as, you know, good guys. And the crowds are kind of in the middle. Jewish authorities, always bad Disciples, generally good, but the crowds are kind of in the middle. They're following Jesus, but we also see hints that their hearts don't really seem to embrace him. They like the signs, they like the shows, they like the miracles, but when adversity comes, we're going to see them departing. A number of Jesus' parables will be about uh, this as well. You remember the parable of the sower who goes out to sow, and there's different types of soil. The crowds in general... Evidence, a type of soil that seems to grow up, but it's choked out or whatever it might be. In other words, don't read this passage. There's a temptation to read this passage in light of last week's and think that the crowds are personifying what we saw in last week's text. If you remember, last week Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 4.19, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What's the command given in that statement? Follow me. Then we read in our text today, huge crowds, quote, follow Jesus. So you might think that these are disciples. These are people who are following Jesus in the way that he just commanded a couple of verses previously, but that's not actually the case. In fact, though the English word follow is the same, the Greek words translated as follow in these two contexts are actually uh, entirely different words. 
In other words, there seem to be two different types of following of Jesus in Matthew. There's the following of the disciples, and then there's the following of the crowds. Some of the crowds will surely kind of transition into being disciples in the truest sense, but not all of them. In fact, most of them won't. We'll encounter the majority of the crowds going away from Jesus at some point. They simply want healing. They want multiplied bread. They want to boast that they heard this particular celebrity teach. In other words, they want the gifts more than they want the giver of the gifts. And that's a temptation for anyone who follows Christ. That's a temptation for you and for me, for our children. There's always this temptation to exalt the benefits of Christ over Christ himself, when in reality... As uh, John Piper has said, God himself is the gospel. He says, the good news of the gospel is what? You get, anybody finish that? God. The good news of the, the gospel is that you get God. The good news of the gospel isn't that you get out of hell. Getting out of hell is a means to an end. What's that end? Getting into heaven? No, that's a means to an end. What's so good about heaven? God is there. By the way, we don't live in heaven forever. Heaven then comes down to earth. We live in a renewed earth and resurrected bodies. But the good news of the gospel is that you get God. Full stop. That's it. So we'll see as we move throughout the book, and we see in this text in particular, that the crowds are pro-Jesus. You know, thumbs up. They love Jesus. As long as he's healing and teaching and doing other cool stuff. But the minute he begins to teach them things that are uncomfortable, the minute he begins to actually challenge them, the minute things get hard, they're out. In other words, there is a form of following Christ that really isn't following Christ. It's following your own pleasure, your own comfort, your own convenience. So what does it mean to really follow Christ? How do you know, as you're sitting out there, how do I know if I'm like the disciples or I'm like the crowds. It's actually what we're going to spend the next few weeks on as we talk about this Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of a vivid depiction of the disposition of discipleship. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to be for us. It's going to be an opportunity for us to examine our hearts and to see, do I actually exemplify these characteristics, these attributes of a true disciple? Has my heart actually been transformed? Or am I just in it for the cool stuff? I'm just in it because it's the cultural thing to do. It's what we do in the South or whatever it might be. So we'll spend the next few weeks talking about that, but let me give you one little preview in the meantime. Last week, if you were here, you saw that the disciples, they leave everything. They leave their livelihoods. They leave their jobs. They leave their families. They leave their sources of security in order to follow after Jesus. The crowds, on the other hand, we'll see as we move through the book, seem to be unwilling to suffer loss in order to follow him. They follow him while the getting is good, but as soon as adversity comes, they check out. So as it relates to us, is our discipleship, is your discipleship, is it marked by a willingness to suffer? Are you willing to suffer slander and disrepute? Are you willing to give up your reputation and your security? 
Are you willing to follow him wherever he goes? Or are you simply in as long as it doesn't cost you anything? So let me give you a few questions just to think through as we conclude. Number one, are you willing to submit your dreams and desires to the revealed will of God in Scripture? And I know it's really tendency just to say yes and then move on. My encouragement to you, my admonition to you, though, is don't do that. But actually sit in it. Think about it. What are evidences of that? What are evidences, what are times where you have actually taken a dream that you had, a desire that you had, a want that you had, and you submitted that? And you said, no, I'm going in another direction because of God's word. When your conflicts, when your desires conflict with God's desires, which do you choose to obey? Are there areas in your life where you're actively resisting the allures of the world? Is that reflected in the way that you prioritize your life? The way that you prioritize church over sports? Or how you steward your finances? Or your dreams about your family or the way that you discipline your children? Next, are you bearing fruit? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, faithfulness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. One of the things we've been chatting about in theological equipping all semester as we looked at applied theology is that discipleship involves being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what discipleship ultimately is. You know, as, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So imitate me insofar as I'm actually looking more like Christ. The goal is not that you look like me. The goal is you look like Jesus. Christ is the perfect personification of all of these attributes of love and joy and peace and patience and all those kinds of things. So my question is, do you look more like him today than you did a year ago or a decade ago? And would others agree with that assessment when you ask your spouse, when you ask your best friends, when you ask your coworkers, or whoever it might be? And then lastly, are you developing a consistently biblical worldview? Understand how to think about all things. How you think about work and leisure and conflict and parenting and money and on and on. Or are you simply parenting the assumptions and presuppositions of society around you? In the end, there's a way of following Jesus that's really just following your own preferences, following your own comforts, following your own conveniences. And then there's a way of following Jesus that's true discipleship. That'll be a major theme as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in, uh, in chapter 7, we'll see these uh, two different things that are contrasted. There's there's the, the narrow gate and the, uh, the broad gate. There's the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock. There's the good tree and the bad tree. You'll see these contrasts to represent that sort of idea. There's a way of following Jesus. It's really just following yourself. And there's a way of following Jesus that sacrifices yourself, that lays down yourself, that denies yourself. So may we be the latter. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, again for your grace and
mercy. I pray, uh, God, that you would help us to be a people who are not like the crowds. People who are willing to sacrifice, people who are willing to suffer, people who are willing to actually seek not just the gift, but to seek you, the giver of all good gifts. It doesn't take an unregenerate heart to believe in Jesus as he's healing our child. It does take a regenerate heart to believe in Jesus as our child is suffering. It doesn't take a regenerate heart to trust in Jesus when we're rich. It does when we face adversity. And so I pray that we would be a people who would be marked by your spirit. Would you help us to see, King Jesus, that you have authority over all things and that we can trust you with every bit of our lives because you're good and you're worthy of our trust. We pray these things in your name. Amen.